Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. In each episode, we tap experts on topics that matter most to the modern working woman, whether you are running the show or working your side hustle. We're bringing in leading female entrepreneurs to share their stories with you. Are you ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Work Party, the podcast. I am Jacqueline Johnson, your host, and today we are talking about the art of the pitch. You know, the all-important elevator pitch, the tagline that gets you into the room and gets people to add to cart or follow along on your journey. It is a key part of your business and your brand. The way you talk about your company or business is so, 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 so crucial. Your brand perception and reality is your most valuable asset and usually the selling point of why people will either one, want to work with you or two, buy the product you're selling. And here's the thing about brands and taglines and mission statements. They should develop and change over time. There are a few key exercises you should go through when first developing a brand. One is figuring out what kind of brand you are and how you want people to think about your brand and more importantly, who your customer is. But you have to understand fully what kind of emotion you want to evoke for this person. A good exercise for this is this, not that. For instance, are you edgy or conservative? Are you silly or serious? For me, Crane Cultivate is approachable but aspirational. It's a tight-knit community, but it's not exclusive. Ask yourself a thousand of these questions. Then get to work. When it comes to your tagline, Take a look at some brands you know and love and who are already doing it and see how they are positioning themselves. A good example of this is Vice. The name itself connotes an air of edginess. And when it first launched, Vice was a punk magazine reporting on fringe culture and their infamous do's and don'ts column, which was basically just making fun of people's crazy outfits. Their tagline then in 1994 was exposing the absurdity of the modern condition, which made sense for their first iteration of their business, but they would later go on to become a news network for the YouTube generation, working with massive companies like HBO and Viacom. They were no longer the indie publication for the fringe culture. They went mainstream and they had to evolve. If you look now, Vice's tagline is original reporting and documentaries on everything that matters in the world. 
Not as sexy, definitely not, but it's straightforward and to the point, and it's all-encompassing of their business. And my point here is things should and can change over time, and that's totally okay. So let's break down this tagline a little bit more. Original reporting and documentaries. Super clear that original reporting refers to their sites in media and documentaries, to their movies and HBO channel. But now for the what and the why. Why and what is the reporting and documentaries about on everything that matters in the world? Well, we can all admit that this is vague AF, but it does in many ways leave them open to talk about what they want. And they do tend to report on anything and everything from politics to bizarre trends. A good tagline and pitch will communicate what you do or sell and why you do it. For Create and Cultivate, our tagline is an online platform, an offline conference, the what. For women looking to create and cultivate the career of their dreams, the who. And our goal is to enlighten, empower, and entertain women everywhere, the mission. Bing, bam, boom. And that has to change over time. Interestingly enough, we initially started out as a platform and conference for female entrepreneurs in the digital space. But what we realized was women more and more were saying they didn't relate to being an entrepreneur. Yes, they had a business, they had an Etsy store or a side hustle or whatever it might be. But because they weren't as successful as they wanted to be, they didn't want to call themselves entrepreneurs, which is a problem in itself because you are an entrepreneur girl. Yes, get it. But getting that feedback was so crucial to our business because we didn't realize we were isolating a ton of people. So we shifted accordingly. So the thing to think about here is when creating or refining your pitch and mission, think about the who, the what, and the why. And of course, get all of the feedback, lots of it. On that note, let's bring in this week's expert, the one and only Jasmine Takanikos, founder of Brand Human, professor at Parsons School of Design, and principal at Candor, a branding agency. Jasmine, you're busy. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh. So I've obviously known you forever um, and really have seen the evolution of Brand Human, um, which is amazing and, and, and so thought-provoking and so relevant right now. Can you tell me a little bit about what Brand Human is and what the methodology and the thought behind starting it was? Sure. So Brand Human is a methodology on personally positioning self. Um, but in saying that, really, it's a lecture series. That's what it's been thus far. Um, in partnership with So House, I've, I've lectured all over the world, and I've done, um, obviously, lectures with Create and Cultivate and partners um, like that. But really what I talk about um, within the methodology is how you relate to your business, um, entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship. And um, I kind of try to talk about current issues happening in branding and real-time um, things that are important my audience within Brand Human um, doesn't seem to, it's not a lot of seekers. It's a lot of like my colleagues and people um, who are current business owners at a higher level. Um, and so I'm oftentimes just trying to really look at, okay, what's right in front of us and how are we, how are we trying to um, deal with that? And so there's several principles that I, I speak to um, and different themes uh, for instance, the last theme um, that I spoke on was at the Barcelona House and Soho at Soho House uh, last month on collaboration and the three-part framework. So the, about collaboration with self, like how do you feel about your actually own output and work? 
um, business collaboration and when you're ready to take on partnership or, or sell or shift the business. And the third, uh, creative collaboration. Can you tell me the difference between an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur? Sure. So an entrepreneur um, is running their own business. They, they claim ownership over that business. And an entrepreneur is someone who treats someone else's business almost like their own. So has entrepreneurial qualities within the, the workplace. Um, I'm sure you have many employees, um, Jackie, that are entrepreneurs, meaning, you know, in order to run a really a, a future fit business, a business that's really innovative, people have to be extremely committed to that work and their own output um, versus just totally um, looking to leadership every two seconds of what to do, but coming up with, um, you know, with solutions and constantly coming up with ideas. And, and, um, I also think entrepreneurs tend to function with just in general, like more responsibility for growth within the workplace as well. Um, and really take on uh, the culture of the workplace as part of their own ethos. And we absolutely have entrepreneurs on our team. And I, I always am looking for employees with that, you know, entrepreneurial spirit, as it were. And I think that's such an eloqu- eloquent way of putting it. Um, so a lot of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are obviously tuning into this podcast. So if I'm launching a, a new brand, let's say tomorrow, what are the three questions I should ask myself? Um, the first would be, is it needed and what value does it bring? So, you know, that's a, that's a big question, but, you know, things like beauty, beauty is valuable. Um, you know, like it doesn't have to be necessarily solving the world's problems or things like that, but you have to break down from a strategy standpoint, what are your value components? Because that's what's going to make you really understand what your marketplace looks like and what, what you're entering um, and your distribution. I think another question to ask yourself is um, what's your differentiation factor, right? Which is the the two are similar. Um, What makes you different? What's your voice? Um, Why are people going to engage? And the third thing is, you know, what's your sort of path? What are your passion points around what you're doing? Because launching a brand takes an enormous amount of energy and process. I was just speaking to a colleague about this earlier today um, is that, you know, you know that I talk a lot about authenticity in brand human and I'm asked about that a lot. And, um, I really think authenticity is something you feel. It's not really something you talk about. And so, you know, if you're launching a new business and brand, it's like, how truly connected are you to what you're doing? You know, I think about, uh, create and cultivate and how you've, how you've grown it into this incredible business and brand, um, and series over the years. And, I look at you and it's completely equal. Like you have been connected to that mission and ethos and strategy from day one. And it's all components of that. So, you know, that's, I mean, there's a million reasons why that series is successful, but you know, you have to be really connected to the work you're doing. I love that. And I'm like maybe a little too connected to the work work I'm doing sometimes. (laughs) I mean, we all are, and it, but it is also what makes it's it, valuable. It, it's what makes it real and valuable because if you're not going to be connected to it, you don't have a checks and balances system. 
there isn't one unified vision, which is important. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I think it's so important because, you know, at the end of the day, work is work. Um, And if you're not fully passionate, fully all encompassing of what your business is doing in your brand, and uh, it will feel like work. And, and um, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's a very arduous process launching a brand and it's, it's very emotional. It's very spiritual. It's, it's physical. It's all those things. So you really have to be aligned. Um, so launching things because they like it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or because someone else is doing it and they see it, you know, in that sense. And it's actually funny. I, I, um, I interviewed Jihan, um, from Geronimo balloons. I don't know if you know Geronimo, Um, But she's an artist and and she said that, you know, once her sort of balloon installations took off, uh, all these people were like, oh, my God, I love this. Like, I'm doing it. And like, I just have a few questions. Like, how do you like, you know, move this balloon that way or what materials are using and like, you know, all these things. And she's she would respond and say, I can't tell you how to do it because it was driven by my passion and my art, like it's not a formula. Um, and I loved that because it it was true. It was like, she's like, people saw it, it was getting popular, which was great, which was her end goal, which was, you know, that success, but then people wanting to do it, but they didn't want to do it because they loved it or they thought it was interesting or beautiful. And it was part of their art or craft. And they were, you know, they wanted to do it because they saw that she was making money. So I think that's like a really interesting sort of anecdote. Absolutely. Especially, especially, in our marketplace of like social and, and everyone absorbing so many other people's stories and brands um, because it, that's not the stuff that actually creates the success, success matrix. Like, like you absorbing things are really important, but we originality and, and connectivity to your art, whatever that is, is, is still the magic piece. And, you know, you see that in just about every category of product of, you know, the people that lead and the people that follow and usually the people that follow really don't make the money. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, it's interesting. It's an interesting time right now of people wanting to be like, well, that's, that's successful. It made money. So I'm going to do it. Like, well, there's other parts of passion that are involved in, in making money. Absolutely. Um, so in talking about mission statements, so obviously these are driven by passion. Like what is the mission of the business? How important is it for a new brand to launch with a mission statement? It's so important because, you know, I think about it like mission slash ethos, right? If you don't have a statement that you're on board with and everyone else's, what is, what's the compass, right? So there has to be an understanding of who you are to yourself and who you are to others. And whether that's like, however that looks in copy or form, um, there needs to be something like that to, to guide you. It's very important. Nowadays, brands have so many different touch points, physical, social, digital. How do you weigh each area? And should you have different strategies for each physical touch point? I think that's so dependent on the brand mm. um, and who you're working with. You know, at Candor, we work across so many different categories and um, we really try to approach this. It's not a one size fits all equation. And we try to approach it really uniquely dependent on the client and their goals and their budget and, um, you know, who they have on their team and who they can bring on to their team. One thing I will say about this is they each require um, thinking, right? <laughs> right. Isn't, 
you know, it isn't just about, okay, we're going to do this experiential, massive experiential activation, and it's going to be incredible and not really think deeply through social, right? So it's, you know, at this point, brands have a much bigger responsibility um, to think holistically and kind of going back to brand human, um, you know, I tend to think about brand human as like brand body and business, meaning like, you know, if you're exhausted, like, how well is the work, right? Well, how good is the output? And it's kind of like the same thing with, um, with a brand. If you, if you put all this effort into one category and not into the other, um, you know, you're just, you're missing a key component of things. And that's what, you know, brand strategy, quote unquote, I mean, that really means so much to so many different things. Like I would encourage people to, when someone tells you they're a strategist or they do brand strategy to like explore that really deeply now, because, I'm sure, Jackie, you've you've come across that that just means a lot of different deliverables to different people. Totally. But you know, in my world and in in, in my craft, um, it it really means looking at every single touch point. So, yeah, I mean, each require different strategies, each require different thinking, each require different budgets and different teams. Uh, yeah, totally agree. And when you're first starting out, you're probably doing all of those things, and and that's okay too. And like, you will get to the point where you can. You can branch out and bring on the right right people. Um, but yeah, it, it's so interconnected. I mean, CNC is a great example of this in the sense that we have a physical event activation, right? We have to take what we learn and what happens at the event, translate that online um, and have a digital presence as well. And then continue that conversation 365 days a year, uh, which is so important and time consuming. And like you said, we've grown and added team members that can now do that. But when we were first starting out, I mean, it was all hands on deck, just trying to build that narrative across all the different touch points, which is but I, one, one of the things I think you were so brilliant at with CNC is that you did that, you did that really naturally. And I don't think, you know, there's not a lot of brands that like, I mean, you did it with a lot of hard work, but it, it felt really seamless. And that's the thing on the, on the community side, that's, I think important, um, is that for your community, it feels really good. And, you know, like it happens. Because Thanks. although I haven't attended every CNC, I feel like I've gotten these like brilliant takeaways through, you know, social and I've really understood what's going on. And I think, you know, like you said, if you're just starting out, yeah, you're doing all of these things. But, you know, it, I guess to answer your question, does it require different strategies? Like people should be sort of parceling out time for every single piece of this puzzle, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and I love that it felt seamless. And I think like the way I approached it was really, how do I want to be communicated to? Like what, what kind of information would I want to see at the end of this if I was there and if I wasn't there? And I think it's okay to ask yourself those questions, especially if you are your customer, you know, at the end of the day, or if you aren't your customer, ask your customer, does this feel too much? Is this like just enough information? Like, do you feel like you're getting a good sense of the brand? Like, I think you can do that research early on and, and, and get that feedback. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's such a simple thing, but so many times brands forget to do that or they put like, you know, they, they don't get the like authentic answer from their clients, um, which isn't necessarily like focus groups, but sort of deeper strategy work to really understand what people want to be seeing from them. Absolutely. Um, and I think if we use our, our own person as a compass, if we're really into what we're doing, you know, usually we can't go too wrong, but one of the things we have to remember are like boundaries too, because 
just because we're like 100% into it doesn't mean everyone wants to see everything we want to see. You oh, know? totally. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think it's a good framework to start from and then grow from there and ask more more questions. And I think honestly, like since I started creating Cultivate, there's like a thousand more channels and different, you know, forms of content that now I'm not even, you know, that up on that my team can bring to the table those ideas. So, um, yeah, it's crazy to keep the, the keeping up is, is in itself a job. So one question I have is how often should someone refresh their brand? You know, I think there's always like anytime a major corporation changes their logo, it's like, oh, like I remember when Gap changed their logo a few years ago, it was just like the biggest deal. And it was like one color shade different, or, you know, whatever it is. But like changing your brand, I think is important, but I think it's really scary. What What is your advice uh, for someone who maybe is thinking about doing a refresh? So I think this is actually um, almost sometimes usually more of a business development and business question first and foremost. Um, and people kind of sometimes make it about the brand when they really need to look at what's happening with their model of business. Um, because a rebrand or repositioning or a refresh um, should be done with like a lot of, of knowledge and information and insight about the brand goals because it's such a high impact thing to do. Um, I find that I see some people doing brand like refreshes when, when they kind of just have like expired their current offering mm. and they think that that's going to re-engage people, but it, that it just lasts for a minute, you know, and oftentimes it can be, it can have the opposite effect of like, okay, so I'm looking at a new thing, but what's the actual new offering? Right. Right. So if brands don't do that work to like really figure that out, like what is the messaging behind this? Why are we doing this? What is the call to action for the client? Um, where is the new points of engagement? I mean, what's the point? Even like small things like launching new iconography um, or colors or illustration, like all of that sends different signals to the body and the brain. And, you know, that that sort of information design is is really key. So even if you do a website rebrand, I mean, you know this, Jackie, deeply, like all of these kinds of things, um, you know, need to be, need to think, you need to think about the impact levels and, and what you're going to kind of follow up with. Does that answer yeah, 100%. And totally. I mean, like if you went to the Create and Cultivate homepage and everything was like gray, you'd be like, what is this? Um, color is so important. And that's something that you've always really f- talked about is how color evokes emotion, how it, you know, creates consistency and all those different things. Yeah. One of the things that, I mean, I'm going through um, a brand refresh right now for Brand Human. So we're working on that. And, um, you know, they, sort of phase one of brand human was a lot of, of graphics and imagery and color that um, we were really conscious about how, how those shapes and colors and everything um, shifted the mind and kind of affected the physical person, because depending on what I was lecturing on, I wanted a kind of different reaction from you um, based on the slides coming up. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just not something that any brand should do without being extremely thoughtful and understanding like how you're going to back that up. Totally agree. So one of brand humans core principles is about genuine connections and authenticity, which we talked about a little bit, which in a content centric world feels really hard. There's so much noise out there. How do you break through or what is your advice for someone trying to break through all the noise? Every brand has kind of the different pain point level within this question. And 
you know, as the founder, as an entrepreneur or the entrepreneur owning a project, it's like, how can you be more brilliant? Because that's what it takes now. I mean, to cut through the noise is to, is to be better. Yeah. And, and original. (laughs) Original. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's the easy way to copy someone else. And, you know, it's interesting with brand human because I've, I've put a lot of energy into, you know, my agency and my client work and we're really busy and, you know, brand human gets attention, but you know, it's, it's definitely like something that I've activated through lectures, which, you know, most people it's like the book is done and this is done and this is done. But the interesting thing about that is that the work is sort of original to me through people's own experiences that have been in those rooms for the last few years. Right. You know, and it, on some level it's protected the work a little bit. Um, and I think that it's, that's kind of an, an interesting thing. And I think whatever, you know, wherever your kind of protection point is for your own work, along with where do you draw from so that you're super connected to something original you know, that, that can create a good, a a good equation maybe. But at the end of the day, when you have something good, people there, again, there's followers and there's, there's leaders, like there's just two kinds of people, you know? Totally. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jasmine. All of this information was so informative and so helpful. And I'm sure we'll have a ton of questions for you after the show. But uh, for all of you listening, we'll have more details on Jasmine and where you can find her in the show notes. But be sure to check out brandhumanmethod.com for more information. Thanks, Jasmine. Bye. Bye. All right, let's take a minute to check in on all things Create and Cultivate with Teal, our marketing coordinator. What's going on, Teal? Hey, Jackie. So branding is actually one of my favorite topics. Even if you don't have a company or a business yet, you should think about your personal brand. It's really important. Couldn't agree more. On the blog, we're sharing seven ways to craft an unstoppable personal brand. Amazing. What's the best tip? Nailing your personal mission statement is number one. You have to get that on lock. And this can even start with your social media bios. Make sure in your bio, people know where you live, what you do, and what you're all about. Very true. You have to spend just as much time on your personal brand as your professional brand. Exactly. Thanks, Teal. Be Career FOMO with LinkedIn. LinkedIn makes it easier than ever to find fresh opportunities and to meet professionals looking to hire people just like you. It's important to always keep your network active and constantly seek new opportunities and possibilities. We're proud to have partnered with LinkedIn for season one of Work Party because they're all about making game-changing career connections, and so are we. I am so excited to introduce our guest today. You may know her best as one of the sharks on Shark Tank or as a self-made New York real estate mogul. Let's welcome to the show, Barbara Corcoran. So you are by all means a self-made woman and you are also one of 10 children. You've said that coming from a large family teaches you how to get over yourself, which I loved. How would you say coming from such a large family helped you as a businesswoman? Oh, it's a huge advantage. You know, any anything you're going to accomplish 
uh, in business is not through dollars and cents, it's through people. And when you come out of a large family, you know how to move over for the next guy. You know how to read moods. You know how to form a team. You know how to get the next kid in trouble instead of yourself or how to stay out of trouble by blaming them. You know, that kind of thing. Um, you know how to um, please your parents because you're competing for their attention. If you have two parents and 10 kids, you don't get a lot. So you suddenly find that you're very competitive and competition plays a big part in business. I think there's nothing in a big family that doesn't help you go out into the world and succeed in whatever you set your sights on. All the tactics you need to be a great entrepreneur. So you went on to Building Grow the Corcoran Group and, and eventually sold it for $66 million. And I read a lot about this deal and I loved every minute of it. The fact that you negotiated based on the fact that six was your favorite number, your lucky number. Um, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about being a woman in a position of power and why it's so important for women to talk about making money, have lots of money, and really pay it forward by giving it to other women, which you've really done, you know, through all of your investments and things like that. What are your thoughts on that and the fact that for some women, you know, money's like an uncomfortable topic? Yeah. Well, you know, I, for one, never talked about money, nor did I pursue money, nor did I make it my God. Uh, but my real God was working my buns off and becoming the queen of New York real estate. So I was hyper-focused on that. I saw myself, you know, in the, in the, almost like the Pope with a gown on and people kissing my hand like I had the Pope's ring because I was a Catholic kid, right? And that was an image in my head, the queen of New York real estate. So the money took care of itself. Whether that was luck or if that was because if you get dedicated to a goal, the whole universe rallies around you and helps you get there. I believe in all of that stuff, okay? So, uh, so talking about money and being comfortable with money was really not my thing. I was basically money blind, and I just happened to, in the end, make a ton of money. And I only started making it the last two years I was in business because I always spent money before it came in. If I could see it a mile away, I had it committed and spent before it ever hit my desk. And I was always leveraged, always in debt, but yet I still didn't sweat money. And I, maybe I didn't sweat money because my mother fed us all and somehow clothed us in that two-bedroom flat, and she never sweated money, and she thought it was a total waste of time. And somehow we all got fed, we all got clothed, and it all worked out. So I, I, got, I got that attitude. Uh, it just wasn't on my radar. Okay. However, I do distinctly remember being about 27 years old and at a women's conference, which I never went to. I was invited to be part of a panel on real estate. And the woman who spoke before me, who had the whole audience in her hand, was a woman who built some big business. I don't even know her name or what the business was now in hindsight. And she talked about being married to a clunker of a man who kind of leached off her her whole life. And then she said, and I divorced him by the time I turned 35. And that seems startling because I had nothing to do with her subject. I do have a point here, believe it or not, and a good <laughs> one. Okay, or well, one that impressed me. And someone raised their hand eagerly and she said, well, she said, how did you divorce him? She said, I divorced him because I had the money to get rid of him. <laughs> oh my God, it seemed cold as ice. <laughs> and I remember sitting in that room that day and I had married a man when I was 30 or, or this must have been like 32, 33, I guess now, because I had married my first husband when I turned 30, thinking if I didn't get married, I was going to be an old maid, which was ridiculous. But that's the way my head went then. And I remember sitting there only minutes before thinking, how am I going to get this guy to get a job? I've been supporting him for two years. He has no ambition. I'm the one killing myself. And all of a sudden, I saw money as a ticket to freedom. 
She said, I had the power to leave because I had my own money. And all of a sudden money became important because of the circumstance I was and the parallel I drew with her. Now, after that day marching forward, I saw money, not necessarily as how to get rid of a husband in ABC, you know, but, <laughs> but I saw it as the power to be on your own and do as you please. And that's what money is. And that's why I think women getting comfortable with making money, I don't care if they don't want to talk about it or whatever, but the power to make money gives you the power to make a life exactly by your own design, exactly how you want it. And I've done that every day of my life. And believe me, that's called freedom. All right. So I might say I'm not in love with money and I never was. And I'm not. I'm not even that in love with money and what it buys because I've, I'm pretty minimal about what I desire in life. But what I like is it buys me freedom to do exactly as I please when I want to do it. True. And I think that's a very important message for women. A lot of women don't uh, love uh, the idea of going into business for themselves, but why I'm a proponent of it all the time, if you have the ability to do it, is you get freedom. You get in charge of your own money with nobody telling you what to do, and you get the freedom to build your own life. So I am so biased toward being in business for yourself and making your own money, particularly as it pertains to women, and particularly if they also want the double desire to have a family. That gets in the way of making money. Believe you me, if I had had my baby, my first baby before I was 46, I could have never sold my business for 66 million. I wouldn't have had that sizable business. It's a conflict. People say you could have it all. I just don't believe you could have it all at the same time. That was more than you asked for, but there it is. I, I love that all my thinking. Okay. <laughs> I loved every minute of it. And honestly, like my mother always from day one was like make enough money to take care of yourself that at any given moment you can pick up and go anywhere you want and you don't need to rely on anyone else and I think that's really yes. amazing advice and on top of it like you said money is the long game right like I really agree with you in the sense that it's the hard work it's the passion that's going to get you there and it might take a long time um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of entrepreneurs these days think it's kind of overnight success and obviously oh, ridiculous I would agree with you a very Pollyanna view of the whole thing totally and getting obviously going from a starting a company to b selling a company there's so much in between and yeah. so now with female entrepreneurship on the rise what would you say it takes to be an entrepreneur these days well, I don't think it takes other people's money. I think, uh, a pet, not a pet peeve, but I see it again and again. It's becoming far more populous to raise funds, okay? And even worse and more insulting uh, than raising investors for whatever your idea is, is the additional idea that you're building a business so you could sell it. Uh, for me, that's like uh, marrying a man so you could divorce him. You know, I'd much rather really get vested in someone and think it's for life. And I think that's the right attitude toward building a business for life. You've just given birth uh, or you've just married someone and it's for life, you know, uh, whether it works out that way or not. If you happen to sell it along the way, which I did, it was 20 some odd years after I started. I never once thought I'd sell my business. I was shocked at, at uh, the fact that it was even worth anything to sell. Quite honestly, I was that naive about it. But it wasn't my end goal. My end goal was very clear. My end goal was I want to be the queen of New York real estate. And so I thought of selling the business the day I realized I was the queen. I was the number one broker in Manhattan and everybody was quoting me constantly. And I was like a, as as close as you get to being a pope in a real estate sense. <laughs> so um, so I think what's needed today, the same things needed for accomplishing anything, whether you be a phenomenal mother or whether you be a, a house cleaner, whether you be a business startup. Uh, you need to be dedicated. 
you need to have huge energy. I've never met an entrepreneur without huge energy who succeeded. If somebody's like kind of flat, they never make a biggest business. You need energy to make a business. You need to be extremely decisive. I've never met an entrepreneur who isn't extremely decisive in the moment. They know, boom, 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 yes, no. There's no maybes in the whole thing. Right or wrong, they'll die on their own sword, but they'll be decisive, right? Um, I think uh, probably the most important trait, which I always hesitate to say, maybe I'll say it in a little different way here, because it seems like a cliche, you know, you have to stick to it, you have to be persistent. They all sound like uh, dull words anymore because everybody talks them. But I would put it in a different term because I've worked with enough entrepreneurs. I know enough entrepreneurs, colleagues who have succeeded well beyond me in other industries. And I can tell you the one thing we all share in common is we recover we recover better mm -hmm. uh, against disaster. And I would say we spend less time feeling sorry for ourselves, less time feeling sorry for ourselves. It's not that when the shit hits the fan, we don't not feel sorry for ourselves. Like, oh my God, why did that guy do it? Why did they let me down? Oh, what went wrong? But we don't blame the next guy. We take it in the chin and we move on. Okay, and that's a certain resilient, a better version of a resilient because I see that. In fact, with my all the businesses, which have been 70 some odd businesses I've invested in Shark Tank in the 10 years I've been on that show, I have to tell you that is the commonality uh, between everyone who fails. I watch them not when they air on Shark Tank and the world's uh, bullet cherries and everything's been amazing. I wait until the first thing goes wrong and then I watch their attitude. And let me tell you, uh, five out of six people blame the next guy. The minute I see the blame cast, which is which is fair because somebody messed up. But the minute I see the blame cast, I don't work with them anymore because mm -hmm. I know they're not going to succeed. It's that old, I'm feeling sorry for myself. I didn't do it. Terrible, terrible treat. No, no great entrepreneur even has that in their bones. They just like, ah, hit me again. My IQ is so low. I'll pop back up and hit me again. I'm that stupid, you know? <laughs> it's so true. Resiliency yeah. is absolutely required to be an entrepreneur. And like you said, when all the fame and glory hits, you're, you know, the CEO, you're, you're getting all that. But when all of the shit hits the fan, that's on you too. And it's definitely yeah, yeah, something yeah. you have to and take. It's in. the only part that counts is getting past the obstacles because that's all business is, is solving a problem. The next one, the next one, the next one, until you actually could uh, solve the problem of, having a great business Absolutely. <laughs> and then if you want to grow it you have the next problem so <laughs> uh, answering questions uh, I don't believe like a lot of the sharks have to have all the answers to the financial questions I think when you're building a business you don't know them you discover as you go so I never hold that against anyone I don't even hold anything against an entrepreneur who's terrible at math because I'm terrible at math I've never read a financial statement I still don't read them but I always hire smart people who are really good at that stuff and I did from the get-go I got a partner who's a whiz at that kind of stuff because I knew I was a loser at it you know so I think it's credibility um obvious passion but passion's easy everybody on Shark Tank has passion it's like the first date versus the marriage wait till you're married to the babe you know see how you feel about it then <laughs> so uh i'm gonna knock out passion because that's assumed okay i would say um commitment more than passion um competitiveness let me not forget that i can honestly say of my top 10 businesses where i'm doing best with in the 10 seasons of shark tank every single one of them is fiercely competitive by nature now i don't think that's any accident it's like when somebody attacks or the next guy's getting ahead, they get going. They're just competitors. Okay, and I'm that way. I used to compete for things I didn't even care about just because I knew somebody else wanted them. That's really sick, right? <laughs> but but I think that's a, a very dominant trait, competitiveness. And uh, 
yeah, so I'm sure there's more. But by the way, if you want, you can send people to my homepage. I've, I spent a year and a half making an entrepreneur test because I was so, so sad of seeing so many people start businesses who had no business being in business, really. Mm. And so I said, take my test and you'll know if you're an entrepreneur and they'd fail miserably. Most of them went and did it anyway, but at least I developed a test that really is 10 questions and you know if you're an entrepreneur. And I know it works because I tested against the sharks. I tested against my losers in the in, in Shark Tank. I tested against my winners and I really... Uh, did a bang up job. I believe in it at one hole. I'm going I'm to have to yeah. take it. I'll let you know how it goes. Hopefully it's yeah. a yes. <laughs> okay. And if not, what are you going to do about it? If it's a no, what are you going to do about I it? I mean, this is my second company, so I'm hoping it's a yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared. Who uh, knows? I know. I, we'll, we'll send it around to the girls in the office too. I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what is the most common mistake people make when they're pitching their business? Uh, they make projections that they have no business making, you know, based on on uh, industry, like the potential in this business. Oh, yeah, I only have uh, $20,000 in sales. But do you realize the potential in the lipstick business is $77 million per annum? And they want you to make that leap of faith. <laughs> yeah, making projections based on industry spends, uh, number one. Uh, mistake people make uh, clearly over and over. I want to talk a little bit about the confidence gap. So obviously women specifically struggle with this, especially when it comes to, you know, between men and men and women, and especially in your early 20s. And obviously we're seeing more and more young female entrepreneurs enter the market. Did you ever experience a sort of confidence gap? And what advice do you have for women who are looking to be more confident in their approach to their business? Let me ask you, is there any credibility in that? Is there really a confidence gap between young women and young men? I don't know. I, I actually don't know the science between it. But I think like what we experienced. So at Crate and Cultivate, I think the biggest kind of miss that women are saying is they feel they can't be confident going into the room when they're entering a room with like 20 guys and, and trying to pitch their business. Like they feel that level, that sort of imposter syndrome of like, why am I here? Why do I think I deserve this? And I think it's getting better because of the resources and tips that obviously you, like we're providing, but also seeing you on TV, all of these things I hope are changing that narrative. But I think it's still an issue. I will tell you one, I don't believe there's a confidence gap. I think that's a cool sounding thing. I doubt whether that's really true myself based on my experience, but who knows, maybe I missed something. Um, but I can tell you one thing that is vastly different between men and women overall. And again, doesn't apply to every guy uh, and uh, doesn't apply to every woman, but there it certainly skews because I've, I've worked with so many entrepreneurs at this point. Um, and I would say that men take credit before it's due. Mm. And women don't take credit until it's overdue. For example, um, my picture of it in my mind is like, I always feel like um, a man will climb half a mountain, get halfway up the mountain, find a ledge, pound on his chest and scream, I'm king of the mountain. A woman will climb half the mountain, finish up the mountain, get to the top, set up tent, make sure the kids are taken care of, the walls are pretty, everything's decorated, and then claim quietly, I might be the queen of the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds, but can you see that? Because Absolutely. it's really true. I learned uh, not a minute, not immediately, because I was 23 when I started. Um, but I learned pretty fast that I noticed that men took credit fast, that men overstated fast, mm -hmm. that men said I could do it and raise their hand fast. And what my solution for that was personally it wasn't like I tried to 
be a man. I, you know, wore brighter, brighter suits and shorter skirts. That's what I did to get attention. But what I started doing is saying, what would a man do? And on my hand went up. What would a man do? I went and said, I'll do that. Volunteer. What would a man do? Um, you know what? I have complete confidence I could get that done when I had no confidence at all, just mouthed it, you know, because that's what the guys did. Mm -hmm. That's really what the guys did. And so I learned to always stop myself when that little quiet voice inside me, I don't even think it was a female voice. It was just a, you know, insecurity voice, right? We all come from where we come from as kids. And we, it's so hard to get rid of those insecurities. But when that little evil voice started sucking me down the rabbit hole, I would just say, Oh yeah. Well, what would a man do? Oh, yeah, well, you can, you know, that's not me. I, yeah, and I get up and be ballsy. That's what I, I develop a set of balls. That's what I would do. <laughs> so you're starting a new venture. Uh, you're launching a podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect to hear? It's not even a new venture. It's three months old, and thank God it's doing so well. Yay. But it's, a, it's no, not the scariest thing, of course not. But recently, it's my most scary thing to do. The reason for that is I think a podcast, well, you should know you've been doing it so successfully already for so long. But from from where I see it, it's earning someone's ear and time. And you better make sure it's chock full and that person gets their money's worth, even though they're not necessarily paying. But they better get their money's worth out of the time they just gave you. And I find that particularly scary when you're just talking. It's weird when I'm on TV. Uh, because I'm a human being and I'm moving and talking and I have a face and everything. I don't feel that same intimidation at all. But when I'm in a podcast, it's a hollow space and a hollowed space. It's a vacuum and it's just me. And it feels so intimate to that one. I, I could feel like the one listener and I feel like, how dare I take their time? I better be on my game and really give them good stuff they could use right away. And so it puts a lot of pressure on me. I find the podcast piece of my business is much harder than competing with the boys on Shark Tank and Lori and investing my money and picking that. That's much easier than a simple podcast that I spend three minutes on. <laughs> I, so, but I try my best and I get very good feedback because I, I think I'm scared and, and somehow I do my best work when I'm scared, I guess. Well, any of your knowledge I'm sure is power. So we are so excited about it. We're Thank you very much. End with some sentence finishers. So, okay. A female entrepreneur I admire is uh, Sarah Blakely. Uh, I saw her uh, sit next to me for two days on Shark Tank. She's a buttoned up, uh, self confident, not braggadoso, first class lady, a smart thinker, and hugely independent, and turned away funding her entire career. Owns 100% of the company. Pretty, pretty remarkable. She's worth watching on Shark Tank. I think you're going to be impressed. Oh, I can't wait. She was on the podcast as well. We love her. Oh, she's terrific. Smart as a whip. The advice I would give my 20-something-year-old self. Oh, self. I thought you were going to say 20-something-year-old son, and I was going to say, I have a 20-something-year-old son. <laughs> and, I, and I'll tell you the advice I gave him last night. <laughs> Quit that job. Go out on your own. You know enough, get it started. Okay, but what I'd give my 22-year-old self, I would say um, forget about who you were at school, that you were such a big loser and such a failing student. When in doubt, I always go out. Uh, you don't accomplish a damn thing at your desk. All the good ideas are on the outside. The minute I walk out that door, the idea I couldn't think of only a minute before pops in my head. You can't, uh, you can't be inside. All the good stuff is on the outside. Getting off your phone, getting away from the screen is so important. Well, thank you so much, Barbara, for your time. Super appreciate it. 
My problem. You got a great name to your podcast, Work Party Podcast. I'm going to steal it. Mine's Business Unusual, but I'm going to make mine Work Party Podcast with Business Unusual. Done and done. And I'll get you, I'm going to get you a copy <laughs> of my book. You're the best. Okay. Thank you awesome. so very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Have you bought your copy of Work Party the Book? Part Career Manifesto, part practical business advice. Work Party the Book is everything I wish I knew during my early years as an entrepreneur. The ups, the downs, the things I learned, and the women that helped me to make it happen. Just like in our podcast, Work Party the Book does not shy away from the nitty-gritty details you need to know. If you hope to start your own business or become the HBIC at your current gig, we're here to help you out. Available in hardcover and audiobook on Amazon, also on iBooks at Target and your local bookstore. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com so you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on.